All right, so we are obviously stopping our, uh, or pausing our, our series through the book of Romans as we start our Advent series. Over the next four weeks, really, there will be five kind of sermons, but four weeks we're going to look at uh, the women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. I'm so excited about that. Um, over Thanksgiving, this home, we do, we do Christmas with my parents, my family, while we're at home for Thanksgiving, while we're together, and so we get to do Christmas gifts and stuff like that. And my dad's always notorious for, uh, you know, all the gifts are done, and he'll go, oh, wait, what's this? There's one more, you know, behind the couch or whatever. And so he did that, and he gave me uh, my grandfather's guitar. Uh, 1955 uh, Martin guitar that my grandma bought for $30 at a yard sale because uh, they didn't know what they had. And it's one of my favorite guitars, and it means a lot to me because uh, every time I worked at the tire shop and there was a break, I would pull it out and, and play on. It was the guitar that he taught me to play bluegrass uh, music on. And so it was a, it's a guitar that means a lot to me, not because it's worth a lot of money, but because uh, it's, it's, there's heritage to it, right? There's, it went from my grandfather and, uh, to me, and so it's been passed down. And so there are memories associated with that. It reminds me of my family and those memories. And our, our heritage and our, our lineage, our, our family trees matter to us. They, ma- they matter to most of us. And most of us in this room, though, no matter how much our family matters, we could probably only talk about maybe three generations behind us. You know, for me, I can tell you about my great-grandparents because I had the great privilege of knowing most of them uh, at points in my life. For some of them, up until I was 13 years old, I got to know my great-grandmother. And so for, for a long time, I got to know them, so I can, I can tell you about them. I can tell you their names. I can tell you kind of what they did. I can tell you what they were like. But ask me about their parents, which would be my great-great-grandparents, and I couldn't tell you their names. I couldn't tell you what they looked like. I'm not sure if they could. I guess you could take pictures back then, but I've never seen a picture of them. I don't remember when pictures were invented. But I, I couldn't tell you their names. I couldn't tell you what they looked like. I could virtually tell you nothing about them. That was, and that's probably true for most of you. It'd be interesting to know how many generations back you can talk about your family. But however back that you could, that's not true of the ancient world, especially in Israel. They knew which family they belonged to. They knew the tribe they belonged to. They knew the family lines they belonged to. You could go all the way back in Genesis chapter 4 and you find the first genealogy, the first list of names of families of generations and when you get to the New Testament, you find in both the, at the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke, you find these genealogies that they begin with. And these genealogies are important because they confirm and prove and tell us that Jesus can indeed be the Messiah, that he can be the King of kings and Lord of lords because he is in the line of David. He is a son of David who God promised would sit on the throne forever. One of his family would sit on the throne forever. And so as one of David's great-great-grandchildren, Jesus has the right to the throne. And so Matthew and, and, and Luke write these genealogies to show us. Beginning with Abraham, all the way down, 42 generations, Matthew shows that Jesus is the rightful king. And so we have this family history of Jesus to show us that Jesus is the son of David. But also, I think, to show us what sort of people Jesus came from. Who are those people in Jesus' family? Who is he descended from? And those people give us some insight into who he is. 
If we look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the beginning, beginning of this genealogy, and it says that Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you notice something different about one of these generations? You've got Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, Perez and Zerah, but it is only Perez and Zerah, Judah's wife, or the woman, Tamar, is the only woman mentioned in this section. Why is she mentioned? Why isn't Sarah mentioned for Abraham? Why isn't Rebekah mentioned? Why is only Tamar mentioned? In a patriarchal society where often it was only men that really mattered, why does Matthew mention a woman's name? Every other genealogy in this time period, you would not find women's names. You would find the male, the patriarch. And it's obviously intentional and for a reason that Matthew includes her. And so why is it that he includes this grandmother of Jesus? I think it is to teach us something about where he's from and from where he's from, who he is. So over the next four weeks, including Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the five grandmothers of Jesus, or the five mothers of Jesus, and the genealogy. And I think, hopefully, we'll uncover a little bit more about who he is based on the stories of his grandmothers. And so the first up we have is Tamar. So turn in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 38, where we find Tamar's story. I don't know how many greats it is, but we're just going to call her the grandmother of Jesus. Genesis chapter 38, we're going to start in verse 6 and we're going to read this story. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Y'all didn't know the Bible was rated R, did you? And what what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Judah's daughter, died. And when Judah was confronted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shears, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. And sat at the entrance to Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know who, that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat for my flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. 
When Judah sent the young goat back to his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anam at the roadside? And she said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of that place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Judah replied, let her keep those things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told that Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out. Let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that the mothers of Jesus will show us is that the Bible is not a book of heroes. It is not a book full of great example, examples of people to emulate or to live like. It is a book full of failures. The Bible is a book full of wrong, broken people, full of bad choices and bad circumstances. It is full of injustices and wrongs. That even the story of the coming of the Savior is marked by centuries of scandal and heartbreak. The Bible is in many ways rated R. The Bible is a book full of murder and polygamy and incest and prostitution and child sacrifice and lying and deception and slavery and all sorts of other evils because the Bible is not trying to tell us how to be good. It is trying to tell us that we and the world are broken. That the world is fundamentally on every level broken and that our only hope is not to follow some moral code, but our only hope is to have a Savior who will come and set it right. And Tamar's story reminds us of that. Tamar's story is no different. It tells us and shows us that the world is broken. So Tamar, she marries a man named Ur who is the son of Judah. Judah, remember, is the great-grandson of Abraham, the, the patriarch of Judaism, the patriarch of Christianity. So you would expect that Judah, this great-grandson of Abraham, would be a good man, right? Because he's part of God's chosen people. He's part of God's chosen family. You would think that Judah would be this good man, but instead we find that he is just as flawed as everyone else. And so Tamar, she marries marries Ur, the the son of Judah. But verse 7 tells us that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So God put him to death. Now, we don't know what Ur did. We don't know why God saw him as wicked. We just know that God did. And, well, I don't know how bad you got to be for God to just go, man, you are hopeless. You're gone. But I guess you got to be pretty bad. And so, uh, <laughs> so Ur was this bad dude. He was wicked, and God, God takes him out. Okay? And so, uh, <laughs> and so now Tamar is a widow, and she is a young widow at that. She was probably 15 or 16 years old. Okay, so imagine that. She's probably 15 or 16 years old, been married for a couple years, now he's dead, and now she's a widow. Now for us, we think, man, that's sad, that's heartbreaking, right? But man, you know what, she'll move on with her life, she'll get remarried, she'll, she'll, she'll focus on her career, maybe she'll go back to school, right? We think those things, but that's not the case. Widows in this time were one of, if not the most vulnerable people in, a society, in that society. They could not own land they could have, they have very few opportunities to make money. Their lives became incredibly difficult. Many of them ended up abused or dead. And so, with her husband dead, she had no one to care for her. She was a social outcast because a woman's value at the time 
was to bear children, have a family. And now she couldn't do that. She couldn't have a family. And so because of this great vulnerability to widows, God instituted a law in the Old Testament called the Law of Leveret Marriage, which said which stated that a, a fa- it was the father-in-law's duty, so Judah's duty, to look after the wives of his sons. And if one of his sons should die, and he has another unmarried son, he has to give that son to his daughter-in-law to marry, to take, for, to ke- take care of her, provide for her, and have sons. And that's what Judah does. Since his son died, he, he, Tamar is left a widow, and now Judah gives his second son, to Tamar in marriage. But the second son, because of the law of leveret marriage, knows that any children that he has are not going to be counted as his children, but as his now dead brother's children. They don't like that very much. And so he, he takes the necessary steps to not allow her to get pregnant. Well, the Lord did not like that very much. The Lord saw him, the Lord saw him kind of skirting the point of the law. To take care of her. And she saw him as wicked. And so the Lord went, you're gone too, buddy. And kills him. So now Tamar is twice a widow. Twice a widow. But there's a third son. Judah has a third son. But Judah believing that the reason his sons died wasn't because they were wicked, but because of something Tamar did. He somehow invents something in his mind to blame Tamar for the fact that his sons are dying. And so he concocts a, a plan to not give his third son to Tamar. He says, well, he's not quite old enough. Let's wait till he's a little older, and then we'll give him to you. And he just never does. And so Tamar remains a helpless widow. So what does she do? She's vulnerable. She can't own land. She can't work. She's probably starving, so out of desperation, she takes matters into her own hands. She hears that Judah is coming to town, and so she takes off her widowed garments. And imagine that you had to wear something to show that you're a widow. So she takes that off. She, she covers her face. She makes herself look like a prostitute. And Judah comes, sees her, thinks she's a cult prostitute, and Judah goes and sleeps with her. Now, they arrange payment, and because he doesn't have it right there on hand, he doesn't have a goat in his wallet, right, he, he, he determines, hey, I'll, I'll give you this cord and my signet, basically, you know, think about a, a ring with an image on it, right, I'll give you these things as collateral until I send you the goat, and then you can send those back with me. Basically, it's like he left his wallet with her, left his driver's license with her. What was Tamar doing? Like, how does this help Tamar? How does dressing up like a prostitute and sleeping with your father-in-law Help Tamar. She's an outcast, vulnerable, so she is trying by any means necessary to make a family. And as it was her father-in-law's duty to provide and protect her, if he wasn't going to do it willingly, she thought she might take it into her own hands and deceive him into taking care of her. If I can't have your son, then I'll have you. See, she was using this sexual double standard against him. It was a horrible thing for a woman to be promiscuous, but a man sleeping around, well, no one really cared. He can go sleep with this cult prostitute, no one bats an eye. But how did Tamar know that Judah would sleep with her if she pretended to be a prostitute? Because she knew that was the kind of man he was. That he slept with whomever he wanted to, knowing there would be no punishment. He could get away with it. He had that sort of power. 
And so Judah is essentially saying by his action is I can sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want, with no punishment. But Tamar, you must remain a childless, celibate widow. I can do whatever the heck I want to do, but you've got to do this. The first thing we have to see this morning is that Tamar's story reminds us that the world is unjust. Her story reminds us that we live in a world that lacks justice. Tamar goes from being a blushing bride, excited about the future, what it will hold with her new family, to being a widow who has been wrongly blamed for the two husbands' death. Abandoned by her father-in-law Judah, the only man who can care for her. So she is forced by circumstances outside of her control to pretend to be a prostitute to give her children so that someone might finally provide for her. This is the definition of injustice. When God sees people who have, not helping those who don't have, he doesn't call it stingy, he calls it unjust. When God sees people who have, who have means, who have power, who have influence, not helping those who don't have means and power and influence or food or whatever, and you don't give it, you don't help, he doesn't call it stingy or greedy, he calls it injustice. When God sees people who are duty-bound to care for those who cannot care for themselves and they don't, he calls it injustice. Injustice is what we call a broken world that forces people into questionable decisions in order to survive. It's so easy, I think, for us, so easy for me, to look at drug addicts and porn addicts and homeless people, people living on government assistance, to point and wag our finger at them, blaming them completely for their circumstances, looking down on them in arrogance because we haven't made the poor decisions that they have, not realizing that we've also not had to navigate maybe circumstances thrust upon them. A young mother who is considering abortion but yet changes her mind because the church down the road tells her that it's murder and so she doesn't do it. But she's had the baby but now can't afford diapers, can't afford, uh, the government checks aren't enough to help her afford food and she can barely cover the rent. And so on the weekends she makes extra money by selling drugs or taking her clothes off. And we blame her. But all we were there to do was tell her not to give up the baby. You see, so often people find themselves in bad situations, making questionable bad decisions because they're out of options. Often people find themselves in these circumstances at no fault of their own. It was the bad decisions of others that forced them into bad circumstances, which led them to make poor decisions. Tamar's story reminds us that the world is broken and injustice reigns. And so, after go back to the story. After a few months, this, this, this episode has happened. She's been with Judah, and so a few months go by, three months go by, and someone tells Judah that your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. And since she's a widow, it must mean she's been immoral, and she slept with a man who's not her husband. Now, Knowing all the trauma, all the pain, all the problems Tamar has had to endure as this twice-widowed, vulnerable person, how do you think Judah will respond to his daughter-in-law, who he's neglected? How will he respond? Does he give her a pass and say, hey, I understand, it's been tough. We won't worry about it. Does he say, hey, you know what, I dropped the ball, I was supposed to give you a son and I forgot, we'll give you a pass. Does he give her a stern talking to and say, hey, look, I'm going to protect you from these people who want to hurt you, but don't do it again? Does he just whip her? No. He says, bring her out 
and burn her. Burn her alive. Light a fire and throw her over a pillar till she burns to death. Now, that is shocking to us because we're like, seriously, you want to kill her because she did this? Like, it seems shocking to us that you would want to kill her at all. But it's even more shocking if you understand their culture because they put people to death all the time for doing immoral things. Right? They throw rocks at you until you died all the time. But to burn someone was to torture them, and you only did that to the worst of the worst of the worst. It is an unprecedented, uncalled for, drastic, unheard of action of Judah to say burn her for her immorality. And so why in the world does Judah do this? Why in the world does Judah say let's burn her? Judah is so irrationally mad at her because he is still blaming her. He's blaming the victim for the death of his two sons. And now he thinks he can prove it because she's maybe probably been immoral all along. I knew it was her fault, he said. Now I can give her the justice she deserves. Tamar, let's be clear, be really clear. Tamar is wrong. Tamar is in the wrong when she committed adultery. But she was also the victim of bad circumstances. And injustice on the part of her father-in-law who didn't take care of her. She's the victim of a culture that did not see women as equal and valuable and provided for them. She's the victim that takes justice now into her own hands to finally try to get someone to care for her. And now they want to kill her and torture her for it. See, Judah had the power. Judah had the authority. Judah had the money and the means. And Tamar's fate was in, the, was in his hands. And instead of seeking justice, Instead of caring for her, instead of helping her climb out of the mess he forced her into, he wanted to use his power to remove his problem, to remove the stain from his family, remove her because he still blamed her for the death of his sons. How easy is it for us to blame people for their circumstances instead of helping them? How easy for us, is it for us to just blame them? Well, we, your actions are what led you to this, and so you, gotta, you made the bed lie in it. A couple weeks ago, you guys know I was gone. I took a trip to Washington State uh, to scout out a church plant that we're interested in partnering with. Uh, on the Sunday that I was gone, the church didn't have service, but instead we opened, the church opened their doors, uh, had all these nonprofits come in and, to help the homeless community. Because if you don't know, in, in, in Washington, uh, the, in Vancouver in particular, the homeless population is massive. And so... So they opened their doors to help uh, the community, help the homeless. They came in, they got free meal, got free dental work, got free clothes, got free shampoo, help with dry, all kinds of things. And it would be easy to look at the hundreds of people coming to get help, the massive homeless community. It would be easy to look at them and blame them. Well, it's your fault for doing drugs and not using that money on food, right? Like, it's your fault for not working hard and getting a job like I did. You should work harder. You should stop being addicted. It's easy for us to blame them. Or it's easy for us to, to blame a system, right? Like we can blame their actions or we can blame a system. We can blame a culture that, guys, is crazy. You look at these houses by the church, they're like 800 square foot little ranch houses that are like 80 years old, falling apart, and they're selling for $450,000. Like, increasing minimum wage of $20 don't even help these people. And so it's like you can blame a system that, that would allow $450,000 shacks to be sold, 
A system that doesn't allow people with a record to get a good job. You can blame a system that doesn't allow veterans and doesn't value veterans who are struggling uh, after they've come home from war and it doesn't help them. You can blame a system that doesn't help people with mental illness. I can't tell you how many people I talk to, and in three seconds of them opening their mouth, I mean, this person's out of their mind. That, I asked one dude what his name was, and it lasted for a minute. The sadness of the mental state of these people. But hey, we just blame them. They got mental problems. You can blame the individual choices. You can blame the system. But the end circumstances is still the same. Whatever the issue is, they're still sleeping under a bridge, holding on to a dog because their dog is their only companion. Or you watch as these families come in with three kids with little. It's thirty degrees, and they got these little bitty thin coats with holes all in them, wearing flip flops. Eight year old kids. We can blame a lot of things, but we don't blame them, right? Breaks your heart to see it. Whatever caused the problems doesn't matter that much. The injustice of a broken world is to blame. People don't need more Judas in their life, right? What, what these people, what people who are hurting and who have experienced injustice, who are, who, are, who are down and out, they don't need people to point out their faults, to point out their issues, to point out their sins and their failures, because they know them. You ain't got to tell them. They know. They know they shouldn't spend the money on drugs. They know they should work harder. They know their mind is messed up. They know the problems they're facing. They know their sins. You're not telling them anything new. They don't need our Judah-like blame. They need hope. They need the hope of a warm meal, the the hope of a chance at a job, the hope of a warm bed, the hope that Jesus actually cares about their state and injustice in the world and is coming to set the world right again. They need hope like that. Tamar's story reminds us that broken people don't need more blame. They need hope. They don't need more blame. They need hope. As many of you know, Kate and I have recently uh, uh, journeyed into the foster care arena. And it is an arena. And everyone talks about the foster care system being broken. And we didn't really know what that meant. Now we know. And it is easy to talk about, well, we can blame the parents of these kids. We can blame them for not raising them, for caring for them. Or we can blame a system. We can blame a system that doesn't help these kids. But you know what nobody does? Nobody blames the kids. Nobody looks at a little infant who is in foster care and goes, this is your fault. You know? No one looks at the little five-year-old who's crazy hyper and says, this is your fault that you're like this. No. This is your parents' fault. This is a system's fault. It ain't your fault. These kids have been sinned against. They have experienced injustice because do you know what happens in a just world? In a just world, they get parents who love them. In a just world, they get parents who care for them and provide them and put them, tuck them in at night and read stories to them. In a just world, that's what they get. But in a broken, unjust world, they get abused, they get mistreated, they get abandoned, they become wards of the state who don't really care about them. They're just a number on a sheet to them to check off to get out of their system. They get forgotten about, looked over. They need hope. They need justice, not blame. Because their parents failed them. You see, you can at the same time be both in the wrong for decisions you've made 
and be a victim of your circumstances that forced you into those bad decisions. We like to make it one or the other, but sometimes it can be both. Often it can be both. You can be both wrong for the bad decisions you've made, for the sinful bad decisions you've made, and at the same time be a victim of your circumstances that forced you into having no other options but to make those bad decisions. But what people don't need is a discourse diagnosing who's more at fault. They don't need more blame. They need help. They need hope. They need what Judah was able to give Tamar but didn't. What happens next in the story is an act of grace of God in Judah's life. As they drag Tamar out in front of the town to be burned alive and humiliated, her last effort is to take the staff and the cord and the signet ring that she has from Judah, and she sends them to Judah to identify that collateral that Judah gave her as the prostitution payment. She said, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. Her point is, it takes two to tango. And if I'm in this fire, there should be somebody beside me. Right? I'm not the only guilty party here. Judah receives the staff and the cord and the signet. And the grace of God opens his heart and his eyes. And in that moment, his heart is softened and he comes clean and he says, She, Tamar is more righteous than I am. Since I did not give her my son, Shelah. In this moment, Judah's eyes are open and he stops blaming Tamar. He stops blaming the victim and she says, she's more righteous than I. Notice he doesn't say that she's righteous. She's clearly not. She's sinned. She's been deceptive. She's committed adultery. She's committed incest. She's not innocent. She's guilty. She's not the hero of the story, but she's more righteous than Judah. Judah had the power to help right a wrong. And instead he blamed her as the victim and he didn't help. Judah was the cause of the injustice and was only going to commit more injustice against her until the grace of God intervenes. Not only did he use his power to help, his power enabled him to commit the same sin as Tamar with no consequence. Judah should have been in the fire with her, but instead he could just burn her and just move on. Tamar's story reminds us that before there can be justice, there has to be accountability. Before there can be justice, there has to be accountability. Tamar was wrong. It would not be full justice if someone just said, hey, you're a widow, here's some food. Hey, you're a widow, here's a place to, li- to sleep. Hey, you're a widow, here's some help. Those things would have begun to set it right. Those things would have begun to bring some justice in her life. But justice is not served until the wrongdoer is exposed and it takes accountability for doing the wrong. It is the grace of God that opens our eyes to our own sin and failings. Judah's eyes were open to the wrong that he had done to Tamar. And once he saw the error of his ways, he owned it and repented. He owned it and repented. He owned the fault in front of everyone. He confessed it to Tamar and then he saved her from the fire. As broken as the foster care system is, Justice is served when new parents come along and begin to be the parents these kids always should have had. But the circle of justice is incomplete in this life. Until those biological parents come back into the picture and say, you deserved better than I gave you. 
You deserve better than the abuse and the neglect I put you through. You deserve better. It was my fault, not yours. I'm sorry. And I'm thankful that you have parents that loved you like I couldn't. When that happens, those deep wounds can begin to heal. The great injustices can begin to unwind, and their worlds can begin to be set right. But sadly, most people don't get that. They live often blaming themselves that I wasn't good enough, and so my parents abused me. I wasn't good enough, so my parents abandoned me. So let me ask you a question. There have been people in your life that you have wronged. right? There's no one in this room that that's not true of. We've all wronged somebody. We've hurt people with our words. We've neglected people. Maybe we've lied to them. If the Lord opens your eyes to begin to see those faults, man, is it not on you to go to that person and own it, confess it, confess your failure, ask for forgiveness, and help them to begin to heal from the wounds that you have administered? Like Judah, having those embarrassing moments of getting caught, having our eyes open to the truth is never fun. It's hard. And by the grace of God, we need our eyes open to the ways we've been unjust, to the ways we've hurt people. We need to be open to the truth. We need it because there are things destroying us and those around us right now that we are blind to like Judah. And we need God to open our eyes so we can begin to make them right. Justice requires accountability. So though Tamar does something sinful and wrong, it is clear in the story that justice is on her side. Justice is on her side. And it is a reminder that we serve a just God. And serving a just God does not simply mean that God is coming to punish everyone who does wrong. It, it's not just, it doesn't just vertically mean that. It means more than that. It means that God cares for every injustice we experience, no matter how big or how small. And he intends to set them right. To bring justice is to undo the problem. Not just punish the person, but to undo the problem. To say the spell backward. To make all sad things come untrue. That justice is coming, not just for those who have been hurt by violence, but those who have been hurt through neglect, through broken systems, through broken circumstances. The Bible is full of God telling his people to be on the side of justice. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Psalm 68.5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Deuteronomy 27.19, listen to this, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due the sojourner, that's an immigrant, or the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say, man, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Psalm 146, 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You see, when you prevent the helping of the vulnerable, of the hurting, of the, those who are oppressed, whether that be a widow, an orphan, an immigrant, the poor, the single mother, whoever it is, if you are not for helping them, you are not on the side of justice. Tamar's story reminds us that God is on the side of justice. God is on the side of justice. How, so how much should we be on the side of justice? How should we be people who are helping? That means not blaming people who make bad choices in the midst of difficult circumstances. It means not blaming those who know their faults, but showing grace, extending a helping hand, sacrificing what we must to those in need. 
Being on the side of justice means not simply telling that young pregnant mother not to get an abortion. It means being there when the baby is born. It means giving her so many diapers she can never want for another diaper in her life. It means helping her with all the baby food. It helps being there not just when that baby's in the womb, but when that baby's three years old. It's life matters then and then. Justice is about setting the world right. The Christmas story is God is not returning to set this world on fire and to forsake it and take us all up to heaven. The Christmas story is a promise of the gospel, a promise that the Son is going to come to set the world right again, to fix every broken system, every broken person, every broken problem, to fix the whole brokenness of the world. Every abuse, every neglect, every bad decision, every injustice will be turned on its head and set right. Evil will be reversed. It means that orphans will find true families, immigrants will find forever countries, widows and the poor fully provided for. It means the homeless will always have a home. It means that in Christ, we have the world that is only dreamed about in fairy tales. The fairy tales are more than true because Jesus is making a kingdom that is of fairy tales. In Christ, we have a world that is set right. Where these problems don't have to be solved anymore because these problems never happen. Justice is making a world where everyone lives in perfect shalom. Shalom is this Hebrew word that means perfect peace, perfect flourishing, perfect thriving. A world with no wrongs, no needs, a world full of endless joy. The Christmas story is about a son who would come to set that right. And one of the things I'm thankful for is our church. And how much our church steps in to help those in need, to steps in to help those who have experienced injustice. Whether it's the amazing amount of kids who've been adopted in this church. It's amazing how many kids have new, forever, good homes because people in this church said, I will be the father, I will be the mother that you never had. Man, that's good. It's, it's amazing that our church would take a man who has come to this church but who spent a month in the hospital with COVID and didn't get paid while he's laying on a hospital bed and say, we will take care of him. Here's several thousand dollars to make sure your bills are paid and you've got food on the plate. You're ours. You're our family. We're going to take care of you. Our church that helps single moms, they don't even go to our church, but we hear about them and we say, hey, let's make sure they've got everything they need. Let's make sure there's food on the table. Let's make sure there's, there's turkey for Thanksgiving. Let's make sure there's diapers. The list goes on and on. Our church steps in to help, and we've just got to increase and be more and more. It is our job as the church of Jesus Christ, as his agents, as his representatives in the world, to continue the work he started in setting the world right. It is us who are accountable. It is us who has the power to make sure justice is served, meaning wrongs are set right. See, God's justice in this story did not end with Judah just owning his wrongdoing. God doesn't just hold him accountable. God restores Tamar what was stolen for her. God restores to Tamar what was stolen from her. The one thing that gave her value in this world in that time was to have children. And God said, not only will you bear children, but your son will carry the messianic seed. So that your grandson will one day come and fix the broken world that you have been forced to endure. God was not only giving her the thing this unjust world denied her, he was letting her play a part in fixing it. Tamar's story reminds us that God would send his son through broken people, for broken people. What does the grandmother of Jesus, Tamar, tell us about his coming? 
Well, you don't have to look further than the people Jesus chose to eat with. It wasn't the powerful or the rich that he shared meals with. It wasn't the influential or popular that he shared a meal with. He ate with prostitutes and sinners. He ate with prostitutes like his grandma. Because Jesus came not to blame people for their bad choices because they know their bad choices. He came for people who knew they were broken, who knew they were sick, and knew they needed a physician, who knew they needed a savior. He came to fix a world that could hurt people in so many different ways. He came to turn the world upside down, which actually means turning the world right side up again. What does the grandmother of Jesus tell us about who Jesus is? It tells us that to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, come to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are reminded that the world is broken, and Advent is a, is a story, is a hope, is a, is a time where we look back on the brokenness, look at the present brokenness, and long for the day that the Son you sent will finally and fully set the world right again. We are thankful for, for your Son who you sent to take on the curse of this world and to bear it in his home body and give his life that he might defeat the curse. Father, would you, right now in this room, those people who are still completely broken because they have, they have no forgiveness in Christ, they, have don't, they don't have spirit living in them, they've not been made new. This morning, Father, would you show them that they can come to this son, come to this Jesus, and be made new and be made whole. And Father, would you make us a church that it more and more and more serves the unjust, serves injustice, that we might bring justice to a world that is broken. Would you help us to continue what you are doing and bringing hope to the hopeless and being fathers to the fatherless, giving homes to the homeless, giving hope to the hopeless. You're here this morning and you do not know this Jesus and you live in this broken world and you long for it to be made new. The only hope you have is to enter the story Jesus is telling where he is making all sad things come untrue. And if you come to him and you make him your king, then that story becomes your story. And your story will not be defined by your bad choices and the bad circumstances and the bad decisions and the mistakes you've made. Instead, your story will be defined by serving a great king and being redeemed and receiving the longing and the justice that you've always longed for. Come this morning. Let me show you how he will take you in. Warts, stains, brokenness, sin, mistakes, bad choices and all. He takes prostitutes and sinners. He takes me. He'll take you. You're here this morning and you need prayer. You need to come to Christ. You want to pray for someone else. We'd love to join you in that. Come, Come see me as we sing. Let's stand and sing to our King who makes all things new. Christ, and we pray all those people said. All right, let's stand together.